put so much more meaning as opposed to just sort of direct statements of prose. And so he would, he would tell these stories that would contain so much richness and so much fullness beyond just the evident story. And people would, would draw in uh, and draw out applications uh, for themselves. One of the best known parables that Jesus ever told is the story that we're going to focus on today. And that's the story in Luke chapter 15 of the story of what is often referred to as the story of the prodigal son. It's been interesting, and I know that there's been a lifetime class that Dick True's been leading that has been focusing on this text, and I just find it so encouraging that we've been, there's a convergence here as, as different people are focusing on that in these last weeks, and today we are focusing on that as well. A few days ago, uh, my oldest daughter, Kelly, was with me, and she asked me what sermon I was doing this Sunday, and I told her the text and the story that we were going to do, and her immediate response was, oh, I hate that story. And I said, well, like, why? Why do you hate, it's a great story. Why do you hate that story? And she said, well, I so identify with the older sibling. She gave me permission to share that. But what she rightly understood was that Jesus' intention in this story is for us to see ourselves in the story. And actually, even more accurately, if you look at the context of Luke chapter 15, you realize that that Jesus was speaking to some Pharisees and some religious leaders, and he wanted them to see themselves in the story. Because they were challenging him in a very specific way. They were kind of frustrated with Jesus and the way that he kind of hung out with sinners so much. And it says there that, that there was tax collectors and other notorious sinners, and I love how it sort of puts the tax collectors even in some sort of category of their own. But it says that all these people, they, they often they would come and they would listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people. In fact, he was even eating with them. And this caused them to just be so frustrated. And it says that they were complaining and, and they were frustrated. And Jesus knew this. And so what does he do? He, he tells some stories. He's responding to their frustrations. And how Jesus always hung out with sinner, sinners. And he tells these stories about who is it that's really lost. And these stories that point to a God of love and what God does with lost people. And so he tells, first of all, two stories that we won't really focus on today. Let me just sort of summarize them for you. First of all, he, he tells the story, well, the first two are about a father who goes out and, and seeks. That's the parallel to it. And he told the story of a shepherd who loved his flock, his whole flock, so much so that when one of them wandered away, he left the 99 and he went looking for that one. Now, I'm sure the, the, initially the religious leaders would have loved that story. At least the part of the 99 who were well-behaved sheep, who did the right thing, who stayed safely in the sheepfold. But then if they thought about it a bit, they likely might have been bothered some by that story as well. Because, see, obviously the shepherd was God. They could see that. The lost sheep was someone who didn't follow the law, who didn't obey the rules and so on. So why was the shepherd so desperate to find this lost one? And why throw such a big party? It seemed just a little bit overdone, I think. But before they could even process that story, Jesus told them another story about a woman who had ten coins and lost one, swept the whole house, spent considerable effort to try to find it, and then when she found it, she also threw a really big party. Now they were likely more confused and probably even more than just a little unsettled. I mean, the woman couldn't possibly represent God, could she? I mean, she's a woman. And how could anyone ever love a coin that much? Jesus surely wouldn't be in favor of such love of money. 
And then another big party to celebrate? Like, what's with that? Why is Jesus into all these big parties? What's with this celebration stuff? But they didn't even have time to sort out these questions, and Jesus told them story number three. That's our primary focus for today. And he tells the story this way. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. He says a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. And he persuaded a local far farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, you know, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to his father, uh, said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. He said, your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. Well, the older brother, as you know, became so angry and he wouldn't go in. And his father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing for you that you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. And yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me, stayed by me, and everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. See, and the thing that we have to realize is that every one of us is in this story. And you need to realize that, that you, too, are in this story. I think that's one of the things that Jesus was wanting to teach these Pharisees and religious leaders, that we need to see ourselves in this story. In fact, I would venture to say that every one of us is some kind of combination, some kind of mixture of the younger son and the older son in one way or another. It's just a matter of percentages. Maybe at different seasons of life, we've identified more with the one and as opposed to the other. But what I want you to do is I want you to look for yourself today in this story. Here's another thing that I found to be true in regards to this parable. That I, I really think that we only see who we are in the story by means of two things, either brokenness or maturity. When we come to a place of brokenness, when we come to a place of being at the end of ourselves, I think we can start to see who we are in the story. 
or in some measure of maturity, we have the ability to see ourselves in this story. And so even as I listen to Kelly's statement to me, to me I see that as a sign of maturity, of being able to see herself in the story. Two of the best books that have been written on this parable are books that are written by an author named Henry Nowen called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And another one that was written by uh, Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. Both these authors, they bring out the reality that both sons are lost. And that it's really a story about two lost sons. The younger brother in selfishness and the older brother in self-righteousness. Younger brother who went away and an older brother who stayed home. But both were just as lost. The younger realized it and the older didn't. Both those authors that I mentioned, they also draw out the extravagant love of the father. In fact, Tim Keller's title, The Prodigal God, is plays off this word prodigal, and he says the word prodigal actually means recklessly spendthrift. In other words, it means to have spent everything until there is nothing left. And it's a picture of this loving God who extends grace lavishly and expends grace until all is gone. You know, I don't think that there is a text or a story or a parable or anything else in all of Scripture that packs more theology, more understanding of the character of God than this story. Jesus is just a brilliant storyteller. He's trying to get at so many truths and we could spend so much time with uh, lessons and insights and unpacking things in this story because people have been plumbing the depths of this story literally for centuries and there's just so much here in such concise text that we see here. But my focus today and what I want to kind of have us hone in on is this gift of reconciliation during this Advent season. This truth and this reality of reconciliation that is seen in this story where reconciliation is and also where it isn't and why. You know, there's a couple of different aspects for us to look at here. First of all, there's there's conflict management or conflict resolution. That's one thing. But then there's also this idea of reconciliation. And I think conflict resolution is unique from reconciliation. They're somewhat connected, but they're also slightly different. And we need to understand the difference between them. You see, conflict management or conflict resolution is when you deal with the issues. It's important, yes. It's something that you need to do, but, but it's not the whole deal. Reconciliation is when you're dealing with the relationship. And reconciliation is the more important thing that we have to come to it at some point when there is conflict or separation or, or challenges there that we not only have to deal with the issues at hand, but we also have to deal with the relationship in one way or another. Now, I understand a little bit about what it's like to have brothers. This is a story of two brothers. I can identify a little bit like that, except I had four brothers, all older than me. And so I'm brother number five and uh, also have two sisters. So we grew up dealing with conflict and the way boys deal with conflict, right? I mean, it usually ended somewhat quickly, but we learned to deal with issues. I remember one conflict with brother number four, and uh, we were he was frustrated at me. I'm sure I didn't do anything, but he was frustrated with me. And and it, it ended up with him just punching me. I just remember one punch, bam, right in the mouth, tooth comes out, I go down, and it was resolved, like it was done. I remember another conflict with brother number three. Uh, he was mad at me. I'm sure, again, I didn't do anything. Um, and he was so mad at me that he was chasing me with a running lawnmower. It was a push mower, thankfully, not a tractor mower. But he was chasing me and yelling at me, and I remember that. And then I fell down, and he ran over my hand. 
And it just nicked my finger, just a tiny little bit of blood. But it was wonderful to see how mad that my mom got at him. <laughs> and again, it was just over quickly. And it was done. I remember another conflict with brother number two. One of my oldest brothers. He was beating up brother number four, who was only a year older than me. And we were sort of like tag team all the time. And I had to come to the defense of brother number four. So brother number two was going to be in trouble. But he was really big. We were really small. So what do you do when you go to rescue you know, little brother or small brother with somebody who's really big and you don't know what to do? Well, you kick him hard somewhere. <laughs> All the guys are kind of going like this. I just remember it got really silent. And I was just ready for anything. I think we all froze. And I remember he just walked off into the bush and he didn't come out for half an hour. For three weeks, I slept with my eyes open. So we know, I mean, there's ways to deal with conflict, right? I mean, there's ways to manage conflict, to find conflict resolution. And brothers usually handle conflict in certain ways. Many of you can relate to that. Different story. And then God gives me girls. And they handle conflict in completely different ways, which I will not go into this morning. But the older brother in this story, in Luke chapter 15, he wanted justice, right? I mean, he wanted to deal with the issues. That was his deal. I mean, this is unjust. This is wrong. I want somebody to pay. And that was how he kind of looked at conflict. The father in the story didn't really seem to care much about issues. He wanted restored relationships. And he was ready to go to any length, at any cost, for reconciliation. Restored relationships. You know, Jesus' purpose in this story, I really believe, isn't, isn't to warm our hearts of a wayward son come home. I think that His purpose in this story as Tim Getter points out, is to shatter our categories. To shatter our categories of what it means to be lost and to see how self-righteous religious insiders can be just as lost and so needing of reconciliation. And the worst part is, is that they don't even know it. And this parable teaches the profound truth that you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him with broken relationships in a number of ways. First of all, you can do it by either breaking his rules and running away like the younger son did, or you can also be alienated from God and broken relationship by staying home and keeping all the rules. He did it diligently, didn't he? Because you see, it's not about the rules, it's about the relationship. That's what the father was all about. It was about reconciliation, about dealing with the relationship. Which is why this gift of reconciliation is so critical. Which is why this gift of reconciliation that we have in Jesus that we celebrate now at Christmas is so powerful because there is both a vertical relationship of reconciliation that needs to happen with God and also a horizontal relationship that needs to have reconciliation with others. And so this story is about relationships and reconciliation. And the questions that we probably should be asking as we observe this story and reflect on the implications in our own lives are questions like, well, how are things between me and God in that vertical and also, how are things between me and others in this horizontal plane? I want to just draw out three truths from this story that I believe come out of this text, out of this profound parable that Jesus taught that helps us to understand what reconciliation is about and what is needed 
in order for reconciliation to happen. So these three truths, I think, are so evident here. First of all is, the first truth is that reconciliation comes at a cost. There's always a price to pay. It's not free in that sense. That there's always a cost in one measure or another. Relationships, as you know, are hard work. And reconciliation, if you're working on reconciliation in a horizontal way with others, you know that it comes at a cost. It comes with a lot of hard work. And if you look at this story, it cost the younger brother all kinds of things. I mean, he first of all, uh, it cost him his pride. I mean, he had gone off and, and kind of stuck it in his dad's face and said, I want the inheritance right now. And he was going to go off and do his own thing and stand up on his own two feet and just kind of be on his own and get out from under this oppression of his family or whatever he thought that it was. And then he comes to the end of himself and he is there with the pigs and realizes that this is not such a great deal. And he has to come to a place of brokenness and repentance and swallow his pride and he needs to go back to the Father. And he shows this principle that reconciliation comes at a pretty high cost and he comes home in shame. There's a huge cost to the Father. The Father gave up his honor in more ways than I think we could ever understand in a North American worldview world and in our mindset of what we understand. I mean, here was a father who gave up his honor because his younger son comes to him and says, I want, you know, my share of the estate. And basically it's like saying, I want you dead. I don't care that you're alive anymore. I want to take my, my, my goods and my inheritance and I want to go and do my own thing. And it's basically washing his hands of the family name and identity and all those kinds of things. And so the honor that was lost of the father was significant. And then when the son comes home, there's this picture of an expectant father looking on the horizon, waiting, and you can only imagine all the prayers, the earnest prayers for this son, because he's looking for his son, and when he sees him, he runs to him. And again, commentators have, have observed that in the Western world, we don't understand the implications of that. We don't understand the cost of that, of how that would dishonor or shame a man like that. A man, a patriarch like that, would not lift his robe and run with bare legs like a common schoolboy. In fact, he would never go out to somebody. He would wait until they come to him. And here's a father who gives up. And so the reconciliation piece comes at a very high cost to this father. Not only did he go out to the younger son, but he goes to the older son as well. And imagine that. There's that party going on, and the older son, he comes at a distance, and he, he hears what's going on, and he refuses to go in. And in the midst of that celebration, again, the father has to go out and search for the older son and say, why don't you come and join the party? Because we have a celebration here. And he humbles himself to reconcile. It comes at a great, great cost to the father, I think, in ways that we'll never fully understand. It would have cost the older brother a great deal to reconcile. When his younger brother went away and said, I want half or I want my inheritance in that tradition, in that era, what that would have meant is that he would have taken a third. The oldest son would get two thirds of the family inheritance. The younger son would get one third. And so when the older son went, or the younger son went away and he blew it all and it was all gone and now he comes back to reconcile and make things right. And when the father puts the ring on his finger, the robe on his back and the sandals on his feet, he is reinstating him back into the family, back into the inheritance. And now the older son has lost, or now he's got two thirds of a much smaller inheritance once again. And so for him to reconcile would have come at a great cost which is why it's so difficult for him because he would have to lose his demands for justice. 
He's a rules guy. This isn't right. It's not fair. You know, forgiveness is a really critical part of reconciliation. We know that. Forgiveness of somebody else who has wronged you often comes at a great cost. Because you see, forgiveness is a decision to release someone from your own judgment and justice. It's to release them. It means that you give up your rights of seeing justice done in the way that you would like to see it done. The father did this. The father forgave extravagantly. The older son couldn't seem to do that. The second truth about reconciliation is that not only does reconciliation come at a cost, but in reconciliation, someone has to go first. Isn't that true? I mean, somebody's always got to go first. Somebody's got to take the initiative. We see that throughout Scripture. In Matthew chapter uh, 5, when Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, He talks about this. And He says, you know what? If you come to a place to worship and you are bringing a gift and you remember that somebody has something against you, in other words, you have sinned against someone, you have caused offense, you have caused a broken relationship, He says, leave your gift there, go to that brother and reconcile. And then later on in Matthew 18, He kind of says the opposite side of things. He says, if you realize that, that you have, that a brother has sinned against you, he says, what you need to do is you need to go and you need to start the reconciliation process. It's interesting, you know, in one case it was like you who sinned against the other, in the other case it's the other who sinned against you, and Jesus says both times, you need to go. You need to go first. The younger brother went first. He repents. He comes to the end of himself. He comes home. But again, as we already saw, the father also goes first, twice. First, he goes first to the younger brother when he's watching him on the horizon, when he's praying for him fervently, when he's looking expectantly for this young son to return home, and he runs out to him. But again, as we already mentioned, he also goes first to the older brother who won't come into the party, won't come into the celebration. And so the father models this idea that in reconciliation, somebody needs to go first. And who is it that goes first? The more mature one. The more mature one in that moment who recognizes that the only way that we're going to have reconciliation happen is if somebody goes first. And we can all stand here in our pride and in our justice and in our rights and in the ways we've been offended and in our hurt. But he says the only way reconciliation is going to happen is if we get beyond that and the more mature one goes first. So we see that in this story. The older brother couldn't go first. Couldn't do it. At least it doesn't seem that way. He, he doesn't seem to move at all. He's the self, self-righteous one. Not the more mature one. And then thirdly, reconciliation only works in how we actually respond to grace. I really think the older brother syndrome comes out in us when we respond negatively to extravagant grace. Think about that. You know what that feels like sometimes, that immature moment when somebody that maybe you don't have a great relationship with, who seems to always get ahead, who now gets more grace extended to them, more blessing extended to them, and you just cannot celebrate with that. And it's that moment where you just struggle to celebrate when grace is extended, when somebody receives something that they just do not deserve, and you think, how can that be? How can that be? When we simply want justice done, 
and for people to get what they actually do deserve. We recognize that there's that part within us that just cannot celebrate when they get grace extended to them. Or what about when grace is extended to you and to me? How do we respond to that grace? How do we receive that grace? Are we able to receive that grace? You know, maybe the only prerequisite to receiving the grace of God is to know that we actually need it. We have to recognize that we need it. But also, that we would respond well when grace comes our way and that we would respond well when grace is extended to others in whatever stories of reconciliation we find ourselves in. So how do we respond to grace? And responding well to grace is so important in reconciliation being able to happen. At the very core of the Gospel story is this story of reconciliation. And this powerful, simple, beautiful parable points us to that. And I think that the Father is the central figure in this story. It's not a parable of a waiting father, even though he did wait expectantly, earnestly, looking on their eyes and looking for his lost son and so on. But it's a parable of a running father. It's a parable of a father who goes first. It's a parable of a loving father who goes out and to reconcile and initiates and goes out, goes first, even while he might wait expectantly for a season, but then he goes with extravagant abandon to extend grace to a lost son. Whatever that lostness looks like. Because he goes out again to the older son as well. The one who stayed at home and sat in his self-righteousness, all about moral conformity, did all the right things. He's extravagant in his grace to him as well. Because you see, in issues of love and reconciliation, you go yourself. God did in the form of Jesus. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of the manger of this little baby who came to this earth, of God Himself, the living God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of a God who went with extravagant grace and went first to reconcile. To come as a little baby, to reconcile these lost people who don't even know that they're lost to a loving Father who is filled with grace. And Jesus is pointing this out in this story. He's pointing out this forgiveness and reconciliation. It comes at a price. And that somebody has to pay. And he's pointing ahead, actually, to the true older brother of grace. That is him dying on the cross and paying for our sin. So you see, whether we see ourselves as the younger or the older son, we are all called to be like the Father. We are all called to be filled with grace. Ministers of reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that beautiful summary text that talks about this ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. It says it this way. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You know, dealing with 
issues in conflict is important, and I don't want to minimize that. And we need to learn how to deal maturely with the real issues that are there. And a lot of times it's very true that justice needs to be in, involved in one way or another for reconciliation to truly happen. So that is important. But in the end, reconciliation is not about resolving all the issues, but it's about fully restoring the relationships just as God has done. And you know, we often long for perfect reconciliation here on this earth. But the reality is, as we interact with other people on that horizontal level, that we will likely never receive or experience that perfect reconciliation. But we strive for a measure of reconciliation because of what Christ has done. But even in that, are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to go first? How will we respond to grace? These are questions that are so important to us in this ministry of reconciliation. And you know what? As we look at this story and how it ends, what's intriguing to me is that we don't know how the older brother responded. It actually doesn't say. We sort of guess or assume. But again, it's brilliant storytelling on Jesus' part because it leaves us an open-ended question. It leaves us an invitation about how will you respond? How will us as older brothers respond or as younger brothers or wherever we find ourselves in the story? Will we respond and be reconciled with God, reconciled with others? Will we be willing to receive this gift of grace? This gift of reconciliation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you um, so much for the beautiful and powerful teachings that we see in Scripture. And Lord Jesus, how you have conveyed such incredible truths in such concise packages. And Lord, there is so much that we could pull out of this story. But even as we think about the idea of reconciliation, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in this well. And Lord, I thank you that there's a cost to pay as we reconcile with others on a human level, but I thank you that that cost, that price has been paid and it is a free gift for us because of your price on the cross. And so Lord, I pray for anyone here who maybe has not taken that step of reconciliation towards you, God, that you would just prompt us by the, by the work of your Spirit, that you would just have us just even quietly in our hearts just confess that we actually are a rebellious people. Or maybe more like the younger brother of running away and rebelling in one way or another. Or we're like the older brother of thinking that, well, we're always doing things right and we're doing it the right way. And if we just measure up, then God will love us. And we recognize that on both counts, we fail and we're lost. And so, Lord, we just confess that to you. Would you just show us our lostness today? And this truth that as we receive this gift of reconciliation, this gift of what you, Lord Jesus, have done on the cross, that you give us freedom and hope, and newness. And you call us into this ministry of reconciliation with others that we can only do by the power of your Spirit. We can't do it on our own. So Lord, would you speak to us today? And would you help us to be people who reconcile first and foremost with you? Lord, help us to find ourselves in this story. And I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately by the leading of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.